right, well, come on back and you can uh, grab your Bible and uh, you're going to turn to chapter 43 of the book of Jeremiah. And uh, we're trying to uh, make our way to the end of uh, this amazing book by this amazing man of God who for 40 years just preached his heart out, didn't he? Uh, Just did what the Lord asked him to do. And it's a real and raw book because he has all the feelings that we would have when you see no outward signs of success in the the eyes of the world. Of course, God measures success in a different way. And so um, we find ourselves in chapter 43. Now, I uh, on the back table back there in that little holder is my chicken scratch, and you're going to need it one more time, which lists all the kings. And... I think if you want to understand the Old Testament of the Bible, you better know this date. (laughs) You guys sick of it yet? uh, They're not in here. The Reynolds make fun of me at home because they say this over and over. I say it over and over, so we'll remember it, 586 B.C. If you don't know 586 B.C., you're not really oriented in the Old Testament because that's the final of the three sweeps by Babylon down into the... um, uh, into Israel to pull out uh, the southern kingdom. It started in 605 B.C. It happened in 597 B.C. And the final blow was in 586 B.C. And last time we were here, we got to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. It's a really amazing story, isn't it? Because, look, God put Daniel in the courts of the kings and the politicos up in Babylon to witness and to share uh, God's story from there. He put Ezekiel in the wilderness up there so that the people in the wilderness would hear. And he also kept Jeremiah back with the people of Judah who were going to be chastened and judged by God's instrument, which is the nation of Babylon, and that just happened. There was a remnant of people that were left in Judah after this 586 B.C. destruction of the city and pulling out of most of the, uh, uh, the Jews up into Babylon. There was a remnant, and they were the poor and the destitute and the not the popular, all that sort of thing. And God told them last time we were speaking of, uh, in Jeremiah or teaching through Jeremiah a couple weeks ago, don't go to Egypt They were always inclined to go to Egypt, but guess what they did? They went to Egypt, and that's where we find ourselves now in verse 43. Remember, the last time we were here, we said it happened, verse 1, when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all the people all the words of the Lord their God, for which their Lord God had sent to them. What did he tell them to say? He told them to say, don't go to Egypt. I'm telling you, God said, don't go to Egypt. So when he was done speaking, there was this guy named Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the, look, watch, circle it, proud people, saying to Jeremiah, you are a liar, or in my Bible it says, you speak falsely. But what they were saying is, you're, you're lying. Think about that. How that must have stung this man. The Lord our God hasn't sent you to say, don't go to Egypt to dwell there. But Baruch, 
the son of Neriah, has set you against us. Who was Baruch? Baruch was his secretary. He transcribed all the things that the Lord said to Jeremiah. Jeremiah dictated them to this guy, Baruch. So he's saying, Baruch has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may put us to death or carry us away captive to Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Kareah, all the captains of the forces and all the people would not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. It's interesting. We talked about this just quickly that when God's word doesn't line up with our agenda, we'll go to great lengths to make God's words sort of fit into what we're doing or we want to do, as opposed to letting God's word dictate the way in which we live and respond in life. And that's a big thing here. In fact, look in verse 2. This is sort of what people do now. Or excuse me, verse 3. Baruch has set you against us. It's our opinion that Baruch has done this or that. And you get a lot of people saying, well, this is our opinion about what this is. God couldn't really mean that anymore. I mean, come on, culture's changing. People love one another. Love is love. And yet God never changes, and neither do his commands. We're, we're not the ones that tell God what his word says. We're the ones that respond to his word and obey his word. Well, look in verse 5, Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah had, who had returned to dwell in the land of Judah from all nations where they had been driven, men, women, children, the king's daughters, and every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahakim. This Gedaliah guy was that guy who was set as governor. He was a Jew who was set as governor. And he was assassinated last time, remember? I mean, the last time we were here, chapters 38 through around 42, folks, it's Shakespearean if you take it in. And he, he was assassinated. The son of Aachim, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. So, watch this. The people went to the land of Egypt. What does the land of Egypt always represent? The world there's constantly that pool, pool, P-U-L-L, -L, I'm not saying it right, my Ohio accent is coming out, of the world, even for the Christian, right? And we're to be set apart and set out of the world. But they went to the land of Egypt, for they didn't obey the voice of the Lord, and they went as far as this place called Taphanes. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Taphanes. Watch this. This is really beautiful. Jeremiah had every right to go and to be with the exiles in Babylon, but he didn't. He, look, he knew they were doing the wrong thing. And he had a burden and a heart for these people that he went with them. Catch that. His heart was for the downtrodden and the people who disappoint others and the ones who don't follow what the Lord said. I got to tell you, folks, in my own humanness, without walking with the Lord, when people continually take the wrong turns in the Christian life, doesn't it sometimes get frustrating? Here's this guy with patience and yet firmness, 
holding on, walking with the people he knows are going down the wrong path. Man, he loves. He loves in an intense, godly sort of way. That's really supernatural. It's really from the Lord. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Egypt, in Taphanes there, saying, Take large stones and hide them in the side of the men of Judah in the clay of the brick court or in the brick courtyard, which is at the entrance to Pharaoh's house in Taphanes, and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'll send and bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will he'll set his throne above these stones that I've hidden, and he will spread his royal pavilion over them. Side note, by the way. They found in Israel, or excuse me, in Egypt, in the place that they think this palace was, a plateau, a patio, a concrete slab, where they think this actually happened. This is archaeological evidence. You could look this up. Uh, and they think, you know, so anyway, they think they found that. And he'll, he's going to spread his royal pavilion over them. And when he comes, he shall strike the land of Egypt and deliver to death those appointed for death and to captivity those appointed for captivity and to the sword those appointed for the sword. I'll kindle a fire in the houses of the gods of Egypt and he shall burn them and carry them away captive and he shall array himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd puts on his garment and he shall go out from there in peace. He shall also break the sacred pillars of Beth Shemesh that are in the land of Egypt and the houses of the gods of the Egyptians. He will burn with fire. Now look, we're going to now in succession look at God's judgment against these nations that were sort of, or not sort of, were the enemies of God. And it's going to happen in rapid succession here. But what I want you to see is that God had a... In, uh, a perfect knowledge of the geography and the, uh, the hierarchy of these different nations. And, and, and Jeremiah, because God had been sharing with him, did too. And so God uh, has a knowledge of all these things, including how the nations are set up. That's very interesting because when you turn on the news tonight and you see what Russia's doing, and you're like, how does that guy stay the prime minister for like 20 years? He just keeps changing the rules. And then you're like, oh, my goodness, is Russia, it? right? They, they, right, and don't you, the Lord is sovereign over Russia, man, and all that big territory. And he's sovereign over the United States. And here you're going to see that sort of, well, he, he pronounces this judgment against Israel. Uh, there was some additional fragments that they found in archaeology that show that Egypt invaded with Nebuchadnezzar at the helm sometime around 568, not 586 B.C. And a pharaoh who had taken, uh, you know, reign was deposed. They found some fragments that independently show that they were wiped out by the Babylonians. So that's Egypt. And then it says in chapter 44, watch this, that the Israelites are going to be punished in Egypt. Remember the place of the, that represents the place of the world, the, tie, or the pool of the world, the world in sin, bondage. Here's what it says here, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt, who dwell at Migdal. Isn't this fascinating? See, he knows all about where they dwell. 
Taphanes, Noph, and then the country of Pathros, saying, Thus says the Lord of God of hosts, the God of Israel, You've seen all the calamity that I've brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah, and behold, this day they are a desolation, and no one dwells in them because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger. Remember? Uh, we, that's what the whole book of Jeremiah is about. In that they sent, or that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they did not know. They, nor you, nor your fathers. However, I sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. Now, time out. There's a couple things here. Think about this. You say, boy, do I just can't stand when people say the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Well, here you see God's grace. He kept sending prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to his own people. There's coming a judgment if you don't turn and follow my commandments. There's coming judgment if you don't turn and follow. I mean, just over and over, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And finally, he, they got to the point of no return. And God said, well, my goodness, uh, Babylon is going to come and be the instrument that's going to be judgment against you. And you know what's fascinating. You've been following along. God told the people of Judah, don't resist the chastening. Don't resist the judgment. In fact, go move to Babylon, establish your own houses, work, and, and, and lean into the chastening. But these people that we're seeing here resisted the chastening and, in fact, went the other way. But I want you to see one thing that you might want to highlight in your Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Look what God says right here. Right here in the middle. Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. You see, God's heart is that none would perish. No, not one. Yes, judgment is inevitable, but he's not welcoming it. Do you see it? He doesn't want these people to go down this path and to have this judgment come, but it's necessary because they won't turn. Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. F.B. Myers says, beware of bringing pain into the heart of infinite love. You want me to say that again? Beware of bringing pain into the heart of infinite love, but ask that uh, some of God's hate for sin may be yours. Wow. Get us to the place where we're not saying, oh yes, God, it's you plus others. That's what they were doing. They weren't worshiping God exclusively. They were worshiping God, but with other gods, his own people. We do that. We could be money, careers, businesses, relationships, power, image, Instagram, Facebook, go on and on and on. But they didn't listen, it says there. Or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense to other gods. Watch this. So my fury and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they're wasted and desolate as it is this day. Watch. God's recounting what already happened, and he says, this is why I did what I did. And he's talking to the people who've gone down into Egypt who are Israelites. So you're probably thinking to yourself, well, the next paragraph is going to end well. They're going to say, oh, yeah, I see the error of my ways. Watch how sad and awful this is. Here's God through Jeremiah telling them this, and now it says in verse 7, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, he keeps repeating that, 
by the way, God himself, the God of the armies, the God of Israel, the father, the leader, the one who chose Israel. That's interesting. He keeps just saying it all through this chapter. Why do you commit this great evil against, watch this, yourselves? Sin, what does it do? It just kills yourself and others to cut you off from man and women. What does sin do? It, it, it devastates you. And then watch this, it alienates you from other people. But most importantly, it alienates you from God. <laughs> That's what sin does. It cuts you off from man and woman, child and infant, out of Judah, uh, leaving none to remain. And that you provoke me to wrath with the works of your hands, burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt. Can you believe this? He told them and recounted, and they just continued to do it, where you have gone to dwell, that you may cut yourselves off and be a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth. Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers? And the answer is they had or didn't care. The wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Verse 10, they have not been humbled to this day, nor have they feared. They have not walked in my law or in statutes that I set before you and your fathers. And your New Testament application to that is God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. God gives grace for salvation, but he also gives enabling grace to walk day by day. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Oh my goodness. Does that count everything that we're into? Life and godliness, God gives us everything by grace. But God gives it through humility, through people who recognize they need God, and here they haven't. They have not been humble, nor have they feared they haven't walked in his statute. Watch this, 11. Oh, well, one more comment. I mean, th- there's no remorse for any sin here. You see that? I mean, no, sin isn't good, but if we do sin, there should be a repentance and a turning. There's none of that, and there's no reverence for God through the, throughout here. Here they are, all the way into Egypt, They've disobeyed everything that he said. Well, verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Here it comes again. Behold, I'll set my face against you for catastrophe and cutting off all Judah. And I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to dwell there. And they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall be consumed by the sword, by famine. They shall die from the least to the greatest by the sword, by famine, and they shall... Uh, Be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach. For I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt, as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, famine, pestilence. So that none of the remnant of Judah have gone into the land of Egypt to dwell there, shall escape or survive, lest they return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return and dwell. Here it comes. Watch, folks. Here it comes. It's just just like this. I I know. I, I say this to you all the time. It's that silly little kid's game. They do something, God grace. They do more stuff, God's grace. More God, grace, grace. Watch, look at this. I can hardly believe this is in here. I would have, if I was in charge right here, just... This word, this sentence would not be in my story. Watch this. For none shall return except those who escape. Fugitives. There's a way of escape. Look over in verse 38. I'm kind of giving away the store already. 
Watch this in verse, oh, 28, I'm sorry, 28, bad eye. <laughs> 28. Yet a small number who escaped the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, and all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there shall know whose words were stand, mine or theirs. There's a way of escape when you turn back to the Lord. Oh my gosh. It's there again. Watch this. Then This is the people in Egypt, verse 15. Then all the men, this is really a powerful word for the men of the church. I, I'm going to go off in my soapbox here, so just before I do, forgive me. Then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods, with all the women who stood by, a great multitude, and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros answered Jeremiah, saying, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, watch this, we won't listen to you. <laughs> but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth and to burn incense to the queen of heaven, which is Ishtar, the god of fertility in Babylon that they worshipped, and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings, our princes, and the cities of Judah, and in the streets of Jerusalem, for then we had plenty of food. We were well off and saw no trouble. But since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and, outpour, or, and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. In other words, they're saying, the queen of Ishtar is helping us more than you are, Lord. Whew, my goodness. You see how far we can get off track when we're not walking with the Lord? See how far we can get off track? Here they are. They're actually saying that the queen of Ishtar is more helpful to them than what the Lord is. Then the women, in verse 19, also said, And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permission? In other words, our husband said, go for it, which just gets me a little bit. <laughs> Even today, you know, I'm sitting up here. There's all these young ladies sitting right here. And then I look over here, and there's zero. And I just got to tell you, I hate it. I hate the fact that we have 10 young ladies over here. I'm glad that we have the young ladies. Praise the Lord. God bless them. They're so faithful, man. And then over here, you're like, what is going on, man? And I got to say, I'm just going to say it, and you can disagree with me. I think it's a failure in parenting in the Christian world. The girls always have to be the nice ones and go to, and the guys, oh, you got basketball, eh, whatever. Oh, you don't like, you don't want to get up? Fine. You like to look at the magazine? Oh, you're just being boys. Where are the leaders in our homes leading the boys? Or are we just winking like everybody winks and says, oh, boys will be boys. We know that they were doing it, but who cares? See, the problem here was not just the wives were doing it. Whole families here were engaged. We can see it in the next verse. Jeremiah spoke to all the people, the men, the women, and all the people who had given them the answer, saying, I mean, these, the whole families were doing it. Not, we, we understand this, right? The men are the spiritual leaders. They're not the spiritual ogres. 
They're the spiritual leaders leading their families. And I look over here and I see zero. Whew. It just breaks my heart. And I hope it breaks yours. And I pray together with you that we would get back to biblical male leadership in the right way, in the appropriate way, in the healthy way, in conjunction with what the ladies are doing and their roles. And they would come together and we could have both. Okay, that's my soapbox. But I see this and I don't see leadership. I see winking at sin and letting people do what they want to do in the terms of the spiritual realm and not having a loving servant leader right here and the whole breakdown of the whole family and then the society goes. Well, Jeremiah spoke to all those people. Oh, I'm sorry, I read that. So in verse 21, the incense that you burned in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings, your princes, and the people, they didn't, not the Lord remember them, and it did not come into his mind, so the Lord could no longer bear it because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you committed. Therefore, your land is a desolation, an astonishment, a curse, and without an inhabitant as it is this day. Because you have burned incense and because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in his law, in his statutes, in his testimony, therefore, this calamity has happened to you as at this day. Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and to all the women, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfill uh, with your hands saying, we will surely keep your vows that we have made. Do you know, by the way, in Numbers chapter 30, uh, in, in, uh, according to the law, a woman's vows were only good if a husband approved them. Now, I'm not here to debate about uh, whether that's inappropriate or not, you know, roles. What the point is, the men were going along with the ungodly choices. And the women were going along and, you know, speaking to their husbands, saying, let's just go with that. And they were agreeing to do so. My goodness, we'll surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings. You'll surely keep your vows and perform your vows. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I've sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, the Lord God lives. Behold, I'll watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land shall be consumed by the sword, famine, etc. until there's an end to them. And then the grace comes in. Fabulous. Yet a small number escaped that sword. And I read that to you. 29. And this shall be a sign to you, says the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for adversity. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, uh, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy who sought his life. And oh, by the way, uh, this Pharaoh, uh, through a number of different machinations, extra-biblical uh, history tells us, was executed for coming against uh, Nebuchadnezzar in around 568 through 566 BC, sometime in there. Some people don't agree on the year there. But he was executed, just like 
the Bible says. And when you turn the page, you see, you've now come to the last, or actually, you just read the last recorded words that Jeremiah was given. The reason is, is because the rest of this is sort of an appendage. Remember, Jeremiah doesn't go in chronological order. 45, in fact, chapter 45, is the appendix to chapter 36. And chapter 36 is a very famous chapter. I want to tell you about it or remind you about it. See, there was this king uh, of Judah. His name was uh, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, and uh, he was... Uh, having the um, word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, he was reading the scroll that Jeremiah's prophecies were put on. Uh, in fact, they were transcribed by Baruch. So here you go. God was giving prophecies to Jeremiah. Baruch was writing them down. They took them over to the king's uh, uh, chambers and as they were reading it in the hearing of the king, he would sort of, as the scroll was unfolded, he'd start cutting the scroll. Remember this? And then he put it in the fire. Remember this? And this is really interesting because Jeremiah had to rewrite the scroll. Can you imagine that? All the prophecies that he'd been giving for over 40 years, he writes them down. Actually, Baruch writes them down. They're destroyed by the king of Judah and God asked him to do it a second time. Now that's germane to chapter 46, or excuse me, 45. And I think this is the perfect chapter for anybody who's doing biblical counseling or one of them. Watch this. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke, you say, wait a minute, you told me these were the last recorded words of Jeremiah in chapter 44. They are. Remember, 45 came in chapter 36. It's not in chronological order. Well, anyway, the word that Jeremiah, the prophet, spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah. Now, I want you to know, without going through all the different verses, Baruch came from a really well-established family. Very educated, uh, very probably wealthy. That's important for the story, I think. And this word that Jeremiah, the prophet, spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, watch this, this is what it said. Thus says the Lord. This is what Baruch is writing down. Watch this. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, watch this, woe is me now. For the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. Now, just folks. I fainted in my sighing, and I found no rest. Sounds like somebody who's down. Right? Thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I will break down, and what I have planted I will pluck up. That is, this whole land, by the way, that's what God told him his mission was in the first chapter of Jeremiah. He's repeating it. And do you, watch this. Well, let's just think about this for a minute before we read the next chat verse. If you've got somebody that's coming to you that's weary, down, woe is me, 
I'm grieving, I'm in sorrow, I faint, I'm fainting, I'm sighing, I can't even get any rest. Let's, let's first of all think about why that is for Baruch. I, we don't know exactly, but, but just think. He comes from a prominent family. Maybe, I'm just, this is conjecture, you don't have to agree with this, maybe he's thinking to himself, and this happens to a lot of Christians, my goodness, my job's not very important. I come from a really wealthy, important family, and you've asked me, Lord, to be a little secretary? That's what you've called me to do in your kingdom, is to be a secretary? Are you kidding me? And, and you asked me to write all these prophecies down, and we traipsed them down to the king's chambers... And he burn them? And you're asking me to rewrite these things? Now watch. You, you know that attitude that I'm sort of portraying there? That happens with a lot of Christians. It happens right here in this little church sometimes. You, you know, maybe the Lord's calling you to the ministry of setting up the chairs or the greeter or the clean the toilets. I don't know, whatever. And, and we can let a root of bitterness come in. Come on, man. I got more skills than that. He's asking, why, why doesn't he ever ask me to teach on Wednesday nights? Etc., etc. And the root of bitterness can come in. You see that, and it can really lodge in people. Or, I don't know, maybe Baruch knew and was scared because he knew what the prophecies were, think about this, and that they were going to come to pass, and he's sort of scared about it. The Bible tells us on this side of the cross, he didn't give us a spirit of fear, but come on, folks, that happens to us sometime. Or, and maybe he knew that what was going to happen was going to happen because no one was going to listen to Jeremiah, and he was sort of grieved by that and worried about that. And you know this, there were threats on Jeremiah's life. He was put in the jails. He was put in stockades. Maybe he was thinking, my goodness, <laughs> That might happen to me. Is this really worth it? All of this sort of thing could have been going on. And he apparently did a little bit of complaining in this sort of state. And the reason I know that is because of what the Lord says to him. Here's what he says to him. Isn't this interesting? I would think, you know, here's Christianity. Somebody's hurting Somebody's got a bad attitude, they're down in the dumps a little bit, they, they didn't get promoted in the church like they thought they would, and they're going around and talking to other people about it. And, you know, sometimes, you know, because we're Christians, we think we always have to put, you know, put on the smile and, you know, just be real kid glove with some people. Watch what the Lord does. I'm just sharing with you what the Word says. Watch this. I can't believe this is what the Lord says, but he says it. He says this. Are you seeking great things for yourself? In other words, what the Lord said to Baruch is, you're pretty selfish, bro. You're selfish. Can you, can you believe that the Lord has said this? You're selfish. Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord, but I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. The, 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 the counsel in this case, it's not in all cases, because the Bible says Jesus wouldn't break, uh, bruise a tender reed. 
right? He isn't going to snuff out a smoking wick. Jesus knows when you need the tenderness. But he also knows when you need spiritually to be taken by the lapels and shaken a little bit and say, why are you being so selfish? You're thinking of yourself. Now, I'm not saying this in all grief. There are people here who've been through lots of grief. And there's a grieving process, of course. I'm not saying that. But here, the Lord knew something about Baruch. And Baruch was being selfish in some way. And God put his thumb on it and said, quit being selfish. Isn't that interesting? You know, you know what? Philippians, go, go there. Isn't Philippians the book of joy? Yes? Is Philippians the book of joy? Jan, is Philippians the book of joy? Okay, good. Didn't you do Philippians there a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago? Go to Philippians, the book of joy. Go to chapter 1, verse 16, and read with me. The former preach Christ from selfish submission, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Paul knew that even it could creep into his preaching. But not only that, go to Philippians 2, verse 3. So not only the ministers can it happen to, to the chief servants, but also to the people in the church. Let nothing, and in the Greek there, folks, that means nothing. That's a joke. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. I think sometimes we're restless, we're bitter, we're down in the dumps, and I'm not talking about grieving over something that's, that's you know, a traumatic experience, a death or, or something like that. But I think sometimes we bring it on ourselves because we focus on us too much. I might get in trouble for this. And here, God says to Baruch, why are you so selfish, my man? Why are you so selfish? By the way, I was looking this up for a long time, and my boy came over to eat right before dinner, and he goes, oh, Jude 23. I couldn't find the verse. He knew it. It's this one. How about this in verse 23, as we're asked to maintain our life with God? Oh, it's in 22, sorry. And on some people, that is, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Do you get that? Some people need to be handled gingerly, tenderly, but some people need to hear that there's judgment and fire coming. Isn't that interesting? Well, here in chapter 45, God really identified what was going on with Baruch and didn't hold back and said, Baruch, you're being selfish. Don't be selfish. I will give your life to you as a prize in full places or in all places wherever you go. In other words, he's saying, get the right perspective. Get the right perspective and die to yourself. You know that we're called to pick up our cross daily and follow him. Dying to self. One pastor that I love, his name's William Still, wrote his autobiography, and he actually did a little word thing there, and he said, really, the name of his autobiography is Dying to Live. <laughs> and that's what it is. 
when there's less of you and more of God, that's where life is. But we want to hold on to what we have and our pride and our things and our bitterness and our unforgiveness and and our selfishness. Maybe we don't even necessarily know it all the time, but that's hindering us. And God says, don't be selfish. Live for others. Watch this. Well, the word of the Lord comes uh, to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations. I'm just going to run you through this very quick. Look at the first one. Against Egypt. Against Egypt. And in verse 2, he talks about this battle that took place at Carchemish. Do you guys know history outside of the Bible? In May of 605 B.C., the Babylonians and the Egyptians fought at Carchemish, and the Babylonians seized world control from Egypt. And then, after that, they had some more skirmishes, and eventually Babylon wiped out, not forever, but wiped them out, the Egyptians. Here's what it says. Watch this. Number one, God now is doing a roll call of the nations, and he's bringing judgments on all of the enemies of the people of God. The first one, Egypt. And in chapter 3 through verse 12, there's a description of uh, this famous battle of Carchemish. You see that. And then if you go all the way down to uh, verse, I guess, 13. Yeah, 13 is a description of the Babylonian invasion of Egypt that sort of took place after Carchemish. And what's fascinating about this is when you read this in your one-year Bible study, I actually checked some Jeremiah off today, by the way, for those of you who care. But when you do your one-year Bible study, you're going to recognize that this isn't just a judgment against the nation. It's a judgment against their gods. God mentions them all throughout here. He mentions right there in chapter 20, a pretty heifer. That was a reference to a god uh, that was the bull god of Egypt. And then down in 22, a serpent, a snake, which was the uh, pharaoh's insignia. So you get there, and it's almost too hard to believe. You get all the way down. You get a judgment against the first enemy, which is Egypt. And you get all the way down to verse 26. And it says, and I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of his servants. Watch this. Afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. There's some sort of graceful message of restoration and salvation, even for the enemies of God, folks. Okay? You say, well, is that a fluke? It's not a fluke because it's in the word of God. But watch this. In the middle of that, God says he'll preserve Israel. That's in verses 27 through the end of the chapter. I want to read it to you. Don't fear, O my servant Jacob, and don't be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be at ease. No one shall make him afraid. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you, for I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you, for I will not leave you wholly punished. 
or excuse me, unpunished. See, he's talking there in the near fulfillment of this prophecy to the exiles in Babylon. And so he's uh, uh, speaking about how they're going to come back. And yet, no one shall make him afraid. Has anyone made the returning exiles afraid since they came back? Uh, to live in the land? Well, yeah, I mean, for the last 2,000 years, they're afraid every day of their life. So in the near fulfillment, it's speaking of the exiles that come back, but in the far fulfillment, this is something that's going to happen for the program that God has for Israel in the last days. Okay, watch this. Going to go fast. Judgment on Philistia. That's the second enemy. That's in verse chapter 47. So we know... In 609, Pharaoh attacked the city of uh, Philistine. Uh, Babylon did a number, had their turn in 604. But it was uh, fulfilled about 20 years later or after that when Babylon then uh, uh, did a number on the, the city and the people of Philistia. And this is a fascinating, unbelievable prophecy because the Philistines came from Crete. Anybody know where Crete is on the map? Yeah, you know where Crete is, over in Greece. They were seafaring people. They were sea merchants, and they came to live in the land of Canaan. Guess what? In verse 4, it says, the remnant of the country of Kaftor. Guess what that is? Crete. It's just amazing that God knows all these, and he... Uh, passes that on to Jeremiah. I'm just saying that because there's judgment on Egypt, then there's judgment on Philistia. They've always been a nemesis to Israel. And then you get here, judgment on Moab. By the way, time out real quick. If you would just do a Bible study, if you want to do a Bible study or a devotion, I'm telling you, this would take your knowledge of the Old Testament and make it explode. If you would just find out who these people are, and where they are in the Bible. It would take your Old Testament knowledge and just go kapow, if you would just know it by heart. For instance, he has a judgment on Moab here in chapter 48, judgment on Moab. Well, who was Moab? They were the descendants of Lot, and Lot had incestuous relationships with his daughters, And you can read about that in Genesis 19, and they were sort of then like the cousin of the Israelites, and they were always a nemesis, right, throughout the Bible. And so here, God pronounces a judgment against those of the Moabites. By the way, just so beautiful, you know this, Ruth was a Moabitess. And she, uh, right, was in the Bible and in the lineage of Jesus. So there's always room and welcoming for those who come to know the Lord. But I just want you to see something in in verse 7. What was their thing, Moabites? Well, they were self-righteous. For because you have trusted in your works, and they were greedy, and in your treasures. And then they talk about this God, look at this, Chemosh will go forth into captivity. Chemosh. Chemosh was a really bad uh, uh, god, uh, an insidious god, in which uh, they sacrificed uh, babies uh, to this, uh, this one. And so you see it, and it's all throughout this whole entire 
chapter 48. And the reason I'm telling you this is I would just want you to see that uh, God pronounces and enforces and executes judgments against the enemies of God. And yet, look this, look at this, in the middle of this in 31, I mean, it's almost too hard to believe. Therefore, I'm going to wail for Moab, God says, and I will cry out for all of Moab. Wow, he weeps for Moab. I'll mourn for the men of Kerr. He, he, his heart is that none would perish. No, not one. And you know the lesson that this, you know the lesson that this says to us? It, the lesson is that we would pray for and share God's pity for the lost, even if they're enemies even if they've done bad stuff to us, even if, right, that we would share and pray for God's, God's pity to come into our lives for the lost. Why would we do that? Why would we pray for that? Think about it. Because we, as the people of God, who more than the people of God are more keenly aware of the reality of impending judgment Jesus Christ, folks, is going to come back. It's not going to be the goody-goody things that people put up on Facebook about. He's coming in judgment. And until that time, may we all just pour out our hearts, even for the enemies of God. Wow. That's God's heart. That's God's heart. Well, you can read all of that all the way up to 49. 49 is judgment against Ammon. That's a product of Lot's relationship again Genesis 3 19 through um, I guess it's Genesis 19 I'm sorry 36 through 38 right and so um, and, and they they were always the enemies of God and he pronounces judgment here against against them and again uh, this uh, God they mention right here in verse 1 Milcom that's Molech that's child sacrifice. I might have said uh, Chemosh was child sacrifice. He wasn't. It's this one here. Uh, uh, I'm getting my different gods mixed up. But this Milcom, this Molech, they, this was an offering of sacrifice. The Ammonites did it. And the Ammonites actually inherited and actually moved in on the territory of Assyria. Uh, that, uh, when Assyria was around, he, they moved in on the territory of Israel called Gad. And so they were a thorn in the side of the Israelites uh, for a long time. And you just keep going. They're, this is the fourth nation that God has announced judgment on. And these chapters remind us of what the Israelites were dealing with. They were surrounded by these fierce and awful enemies. In fact, if you go back to Psalm 83, 5 through 7 and 17 through 18, a guy named Asaph actually prayed for these people's destruction because they were such a thorn in the side of the Israelites, and here they are, the judgment has been pronounced, and all of that has come true. But watch this. Look in verse 6. But afterward, I'll bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. And then you have the fifth one, judgment on Edom. Who was Edom? He was a descendant of Esau, right? Or they were descendants of Esau. They were part of that 
uh, of a strange alliance that we find back in chapter 27 of Jeremiah, where all these, most of these different countries came together during Zedekiah's reign to see if they could fight against all the world powers. Anyway, judgments announced on Edom. Okay, and they're uh, to the south of Israel here, and you could read through that, and then you get to chapter uh, excuse me, verse 23, and you see a judgment on Damascus in Syria. They were always, and you could read about it in Elijah and Elisha's time, they were sort of always a, a thorn in the side of, of all uh, of the Israelites. And then the judgment on the tribal people, Kador and Hazar, that's the eighth judgment. These were the Bedouins who sort of just went around, uh, you know, in the desert. And then you get to this, there's this judgment on Elam, These were Semitic people who were neighbors of the Babylonians. What's fascinating about this, I know I'm going fast and you're kind of, you know, ready to go, and I understand that. You know what's fascinating about this? These peoples are mentioned in Acts chapter 2 when the tongues were being spoke and all the different peoples heard. Remember that? It actually mentions that these people were there, which shows you again. God's grace to to these people. In fact, God gave promises to restore now to Egypt, Moab, Ammon, Elam, and Judah. Watch this in verse 39. But it shall come to pass in the latter days that I will bring back the captives of Elam, says the Lord. How about that? And then you have a judgment on Babylon and Babylonia. And this is announced against Babylon, this judgment. The judgment is, uh, you know, that they're going to be taken out, and they, which is almost too hard to believe for Jeremiah's ears and anybody who's hearing that at the time, because Babylon was the dominant world power. But when you and I go to the book of Daniel, you see in one day, one night, the Medes and the Persians come and take over Babylon, and Daniel describes all of that. And so you could read about all of that. By the way, I'll close with this. Over in verse 15, it says that the foundations of Babylon have fallen and her walls have fallen. And some people get really uptight about that because when Cyrus made the decree for the Medes and the Persians, he actually took over the city and he didn't destroy it. And they're like, well, wait a second. What, what is all that about? Well, again, the Bible has come true. Because there's an account that says this, from the fall of Babylon, its importance declined. For Cyrus made Susa the capital of the kingdom, and then it revolted against a guy named Darius who subdued it and then broke down all the gates and the walls. And according to Strabo, another historian, Xerxes destroyed the tower of Belus, and under the Persians and under Alexander the Great and the successors, Babylon continued to decline. And I'll quit reading, but the point is that eventually all the walls and the towers did fall down, (laughs) and God was right. Now, I'll quit. But here's what I want you to know. Why, why does this just keep going, one right after the other, all nine, 
all nine, and we'll finish next week in 51 and 52. Why, why? Why is it just judgment after judgment? And really the books, because here's the thing, folks. God is going to defeat all of his enemies when it's time. And another thing that you should get from this is a quote I'll read to you. God hates sin, and he has to punish it. And that's why sinners must take their sins to the cross where Christ was crucified. The wages of sin must be exacted in full, F-U-L-L. Sinners must either pay for their own sins, as the Moabites did, or have their sins paid for them on the cross. Becoming a Christian means giving your sins to Jesus Christ, trusting that they were paid for when he died on the cross. Otherwise, you're going to have to pay for them yourself. <laughs> wow. And, and you see the character of God all throughout these judgments. His heart is that none would perish, but judgment will come for those who insist on counting on their own righteousness, being prideful, and in, uh, um, uh, trusting in good works or wealth. And God's saying, no, listen, I've provided you the sacrifice. Just take the gift. Just take the gift. And so I hope when you read this, and as we move on out from here, you're thinking to yourself, my goodness, maybe that has happened for me, and praise the Lord, I'm glad it has. But there's going to be people tomorrow morning you're going to get up and you're going to go do your thing. And I don't know where it will be. It will be different from where I do. And there's people who've never surrendered their life to this, to Jesus Christ. And you and I and we have the message. That God must punish sin and he will punish sin. And he's coming in judgment. But that Jesus Christ paid for the sin. And if you count on him and put all your faith in him, you're saved from your sins, and you have eternal life. Oh, my. Seriously, from this time until you say your last breath or the Lord comes back first, what else do you want to do but that? Let's pray. Well, Lord, <laughs> it is sort of a hard message. And, Lord, i got to just tell you, I don't say this in a blasphemous way, but it's sort of a monotonous message. Judgment, 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 judgment. And yet, Lord, you always provide a way of escape. And so I pray, Lord, that if it hasn't happened in anyone's life here tonight, that that would happen for them. But also, Lord, as we move out tomorrow, you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and share your good news of your son Jesus, with whomever you set us up to share it with. Help us to obediently walk through the doors that you open for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.